Good morning. The reading for today is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses uh, 25 to 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right, thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. Uh, so, right away, going off notes, um, sitting there listening to Mallory. <laughs> I just love the way the Holy Spirit works things out. We need to trust the Spirit of God. Uh, he kind of knows what he's doing. She, most of what she had to say, I'm going to be kind of covering in this morning's passage. And that was not an accident. And, and I know it wasn't because Mallory was searching the scriptures to try to find a way to kind of tie in with the the sermon, that's just the way it worked out. We're going to talk a little bit about work today. Um, and, and then even beyond that, this morning, I'm looking on Twitter, and there was a tweet this morning. Somebody proclaimed, like a drop-the-mic proclaim, there is nothing moral about work. There is no reason whatsoever any person should feel compelled to work. Okay, this is why I want to get off Twitter, because there's insanity on Twitter. Just absolute insanity. If it weren't for work, this person who tweeted wouldn't have a place to tweet her stupid tweet. I'm sorry, I used the S word. I'm glad there are no children in here. Okay, I get yelled at for that. But it just, it's just wild. We were created for work. We were created for work. Now, I know there are challenges sometimes where you can't work, uh, physical restrictions and, and other things. I get all of that. But if, you're, if God has given you an able body and an able mind, you're created for work, whether it's in the home or somewhere else. That is God's goodness for us. And it is to God's glory that we are created for work. So that's the sermon today. If I could get the musicians to come out of the green room a little earlier. I'm kidding. Guys, stay back there. Okay. Uh, anyway, my name is Frank, in case you're new here. Who is this guy just going off on this rant? Uh, uh, my name is Frank. I'm, I'm the lead pastor here. Glad to be back. Uh, I was, uh, we were gone for about 10 days in Wisconsin, a little uh, vacation. It was interesting. We, 10 days in the Midwest in the summer, absolutely no weather. None. No weather. Not one drop of rain, not, not even hardly a breeze, nothing. And then we flew in. Um, I think it was Wednesday night, we flew in, and of course, we're flying in, dodging all the monsoons. We had to come back to Phoenix to get weather, so yeah, you don't care about that. Let me move on. So uh, one of the things I want to address up front, I'm very thankful again, as always, that Cody was, uh, stepped in and, and filled in for me and, and did the sermon last week. 
Um, really good stuff, but there were some falsehoods in his sermon that we have to deal with. So, for instance, um, he described himself at one point in the sermon as six foot one, 200 pounds. You need to understand, he, he's not six one. He's six foot half an inch. So, I, we just need to make sure that we stay on top of this fact-checking, okay? So... We are in Ephesians. We are continuing in Ephesians. We're in the third week of this little mini-series that's dealing with this significant paragraph in the letter that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, which is chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, filled with 17 different exhortations. He's saying, look, I presented uh, God's glorious gospel to you in and through Jesus Christ in the first three chapters. And, and now in chapter 4, he begins to tell us how this is supposed to help transform us and live in a different way. And, and toward the end now of, of chapter 4, he just gets to these exhortations. We've, Cody covered the 17 exhortations last week. I did it the first week we were in that uh, section. Uh, and, and so far... What we've looked at in this paragraph, which is we're going to look at, including this week, we have four more weeks in this paragraph, uh, we've looked at lying and anger primarily over the last two weeks, and, and what we've understood, or at least should have come to understand about lying and anger is that they destroy trust and they destroy community. And verse 28 today, you could argue is primarily about theft. I'm going to argue that theft is important, but it's not primarily about theft. Um, but today we talk about theft and, and how the attitudes that lead to uh, a mindset or a character that would steal uh, really hamper unity and community as well. It's, it's a problem. So let me uh, not reread the whole passage that Nick read, but just the verse we're looking at. It's probably the longest of the verses in this paragraph. It's verse 28. Let the thief... No longer steal. Interesting that Paul calls the person who's the thief. In other words, quit finding your identity in something other than Christ. So let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So one of the first questions I ask about something like this is, let's talk first about the, the stealing, the thievery. Um, what is the text behind the text? What are the backstories to somebody who feels, might feel that it's necessary to steal or to live a life of... The, so what are some of the root sins of stealing? Uh, and I came up with four primary ones. Uh, the first one, of course, is pride. Okay, you, you know, I, I see that somebody else has more than I do. I'm better than they are. I need to have more than they have. It's just simple pride. Uh, the second one, of course, is, would be uh, coveting, covetousness, or even you could go so far as to say hoarding. There's just this, this desire for more. I think it's interesting that the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 um, really begins with this idea of, Lord, just give me what I need for today. And yet, we're, by nature, we are hoarders, and we, and we covet, and there's some... There's some greed involved in that. And by the way, I, want to, I just want to make sure I point this out. Greed is not something that afflicts only one class of people. There, in our culture, there's this thought process that says if you're wealthy, you must be greedy. 
Some of the greediest people I have ever met are people that really don't have very much. It doesn't mean, being greedy doesn't mean you have a lot. Being greedy means that you want more than what you have. And you feel like you deserve it. And you covet it. And when you get it, you hoard it. Again, here you go, little movie illustration. The second Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps. So Josh Brolin's character, uh, he's worth literally billions, with a B, billions of dollars. Um, in the movie, his name was Bretton James. And Shia LaBeouf's uh, a character goes to him and is meeting with him in his study, in his home. And he's pressing uh, Josh Brolin's character about how much he has. And, and, and finally, he just says, how much is enough? How much do you need? When will you stop acquiring? How much do you need? What's that number? And he just looks at him and says, more. More. There is no number. Whatever I have, it's not enough. I need more. And he has billions. And so that's a problem. Then there's idolatry. The fact that we worship wealth. All of us, to some extent, in some way, serve and worship wealth. Again, there's nothing wrong with wealth. But when we elevate it in importance over Jesus Christ, we have turned it into a false god. Ecclesiastes 5 says, For the person who loves money, he or she never has money enough. At some point, you have to recognize where is your value and where is your identity. Is it in your stuff? Is it in your portfolio? Or is it really in Jesus Christ? And then that calls us to a responsibility of how we're going to steward what we have. Whether we're middle class, lower class, upper class in terms of uh, socioeconomic standing, we are all called to be stewards of what God has given us. And the problem with having wealth as a God is that like every other false God, like every other uh, idol, false gods never fail to fail. Ultimately, you're going to realize that that's not what's going to give you that fulfillment and that purpose that you were looking for. Um, as a side note, I would just say that insecurity, not necessarily a sin, but a, a, an emotional condition, insecurity can also lead us to, uh, to steal. But then this idea of entitlement, entitlement. Um, that tweet this morning that I mentioned was, a, was an entitlement tweet. It, literally, towards the end of the tweet, it was, I exist, therefore, I deserve. I deserve, I deserve, if I'm breathing, I deserve, okay? Now, I'm old enough to remember when somebody who would say that would just be laughed off the planet, but now that's kind of, so I've been reading a lot of biographies lately, and I hesitate to mention this one because you're like, well, you're not reading very deep biography, but I've read some deep biographies. I'm reading a little bit more light-hearted one now. I'm reading uh, Chris Pratt's biography right now, okay? It's really good, okay? But one of the things that he says is, you know, one of the things that kind of helped make him famous was his role on Parks and Rec as, as Andy Dwyer. And, and he says this, he says, um, I'm somebody as Andy Dwyer who is living the American dream. Not the old American dream, but the new American dream. The new American dream is this, do as little as possible and gain the maximum return from it. That's the new American dream that we're living in. The devalue of, 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 of work. And so this entitlement, this idea that because I exist, I deserve something. 
And this is interesting. For, for many, uh, thievery is not necessarily a complicated activity that requires lots of thought. It's just something that's kind of hardwired into many of us. Hardwired into many of us. There's lots of studies that have been done on this stuff. Um, so cheating on an expense report. Well, it's really not cheating. There's a lot of money that I spend on other stuff that I don't really turn. Well, it's not really. Yeah, but cheating on an expense report. Um, pilfering supplies from work. <laughs> if, you, if you like watching The Office, you know that Holly Flax, the HR person, was really upset about people taking pens and pencils home from work. But that reminds me that Warren Buffett once said that um, anybody who steals a pen from work is Bernie Madow without any imagination, okay? So stealing supplies from work, skimming, uh, or simply not recording cash transactions. Let me tell you something, that happens a lot. Uh, I spent 17 years in the retail business before um, uh, going back to school and retooling. And I will tell you, the biggest challenge of retail management is the in-store pilfering, the, the skimming, the stealing. It's just true. And, and it, is a, it is a daily task to stay on top. These are people who are taking a paycheck and taking what they want out of the till or out of your inventory. And it happens like nobody's business. And by the way, because it's so rampant, you need to understand, uh, companies just build that into the cost of their goods sold. So we're all paying for it. When you buy something, you're paying for the pilferage of employees. You just, just need to understand that. Oh, suddenly now it's affecting. Now I'm in, okay, now ooh, I'll sit forward now for this sermon, okay? Now, all of that kind of income certainly is supplemental. It's generally people who already have a job and have a paycheck. It's supplemental. It's just kind of giving you the little extras, you know? And, and again, it's frightening how many people actually do this and just sort of as a matter of routine do these kinds of things. But there are also people who steal who actually try to make a living at it. And, and to be able to do that, there has to be some measure of intelligence because if you're doing it on a much bigger scale, chances the risk is higher. You might get caught. There has to be effort, creativity, focus, and discipline. You've got to be disciplined to be really good at thievery to be able to make a living at it. I know, my mind is weird. It thinks about things like this. Okay? Uh, in other words, you need to be kind of a professional at it. Here you go. For instance, like financial fraud. Right? Bernie Madow was a professional. Michael Milliken was a professional. The guys at Enron were professionals at this. Okay? Yet, here you go. Research shows that those who steal, whether it's casually or professionally, those who steal, there's also a correlation in their character to many other flaws that a person who works hard and is generous with what they work for is much less likely to indulge. There have been correlations in the studies. So the person who steals is also much more prone toward idleness or laziness, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. So all of that is, is to say this. I want to make sure we understand this. This is a character issue. Paul's getting at a character issue. He's not getting necessarily at a behavioral issue. Yes, we want the behavior to stop, but it's also, a, it goes deeper. It's a character issue. It's where you find your identity. It's where you find 
uh, your trust and your faith. It's a character issue. Um, Proverbs, of course, has a lot to say about stealing, such as uh, Proverbs 10.2. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Here you go. Understand, it's not that treasures are bad. Scripture never says treasures are bad. What it it cautions against is making that your God, okay? Uh, But Solomon here in this proverb is saying when we taint the equation of treasures with corruption, treasures ultimately become useless to us. How are you going about obtaining those treasures? What's the process that you're going through. Proverbs 20, 17, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. You gain something through corruption, and, and there, there's, there is a sense of satisfaction. You, you know, you beat the system. You beat the system. You figured it out, and you got, you got the spoils of, of this creative way of, of being able to get that which really isn't yours and that you haven't worked for, but it ultimately doesn't satisfy. The, he, the, that kind of gain is like empty calories. And there might be nobody in this room who knows more about empty calories than I do. Let me tell you something, and, and, and the effect of them. I can eat three bowls of donuts. Empty calories, amen? So delicious though, Amen? Right? All right? And, and that, that time, that 25 or 30 seconds that it takes me to eat those three donuts, okay? <laughs> Wonderful! What about five minutes later? It's like gravel in your stomach. Nothing good. Cheetos is another one. I love Cheetos. <laughs> love Cheetos. But, you know, after you eat one and a half family bagfuls while you're watching Wimbledon, might need a salad for dessert, you know. For many, the juice of the stealing is not found in the enjoyment of the spoils, but in the actual beating of the system. And, and so what they get out of it actually becomes like gravel in their mouth, okay? They love the dopamine rush, but not that interested otherwise. In fact, I've noticed that a sort of resentment can build toward that which is gained through dishonesty, some people actually resent the things that they've, they've plotted out in their mind to gain through dishonesty, and then it becomes something that they resent. Okay? So, having said all that, let me reread the verse again and then tell you what I really want to talk about this morning. Okay? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Notice that this verse is not just a statement against stealing. There's so much more going on in this verse. Way more than just saying, quit stealing. Okay? For instance, here's the first thing. Verse 28 has a strong call to the idea of repentance. This might be the strongest thing that we find in this verse, is the idea of repentance. Let the one who steals no longer steal, but he needs to work she needs to work and to provide and to be generous. You see, biblical repentance is never just the act of stopping a behavior. It's never that simple. And by the way, that's really hard to just stop a behavior. Psychologists will tell you that as well. 
there has to be something better that we turn to. And Paul is constantly calling us in repentance to stop this, but turn to something better. And that's what he really champions, the something better. Repentance always includes turning toward that which is better. Repentance is a trait. It's an attribution of the new creation formed from the gospel in us, the new man or woman in Christ. It's a reforming of our perspective and our worldview. It's it's actually changing our mind and sticking with it. That's what repentance is. It's not just turning away from sin, but it's turning to the cross. Rosaria Butterfield says it this way in her most recent book. Repentance is not just a a conversion exercise. It is the posture of the Christian. Repentance is the threshold to God. You and I daily should be turning from what our flesh is calling us to do and turning toward what the Holy Spirit is filling us to do. Last Sunday we were at um, uh, Water City Church in Oshkosh. And the pastor, Jason, said this. He said, if, and I, by the way, I tweeted it and like one person read it, so I was pretty excited about that. Um, uh, he said this. He said, if you have never read the Bible and had your mind changed about something, you are either Jesus or you are in full-on denial. Kind of convicting, right? Also true. Also True. Repentance is the new mind of Christ. It recognizes not just that we're forgiven, but we're called to a new life. Now, now here you go. If, if, if you've kind of wandered mentally the last couple of minutes, I want, I'm calling you back. Look up here. This is really important, okay? Many people, and I'm talking about people who would claim Christ as their Savior. I'm not talking about people who don't know Jesus. I'm talking about people who claim Christ as their Savior. Many people have this idea that Jesus forgives us so that we can continue in our old life and still be blessed with salvation. That is the majority view of Christianity, I want you to know. The majority view. People believe that now. People believed it then when Paul was writing. There are several New Testament letters, several, that address this particular attitude. Paul addresses it all the time in his letters. The, letter, the one letter that Jude wrote in the New Testament, the whole letter is about that issue. In fact, he starts his letter saying, I was planning to write to you about our common faith, but instead I need to write you about this. You claim Christ, but you're using it for licentiousness so that you can just keep sinning. Your, your life hasn't been transformed at all. I need to call you to repentance. That's his whole letter. Second John, same way. This is, this is not a problem just today. It's a problem with human nature. It's a problem even for the Christian as the flesh battles with the spirit. Again, Rosaria writes this, Jesus met sinners at the table. In other words, Jesus had food fellowship with people. And and, in the first century, that's a big deal to sit down with somebody and have a meal with them. It, It means that you want to be with them and that you're in relationship with them. It's significant. This is why the Pharisees would get so angry when he would sit at a table with sinners. Their idea was that Jesus should only be sitting with the Pharisees, those who never break the law, those who never sin. Of course they do, but those those self-righteous guys. Rosaria writes, Jesus meets 
met sinners at the table, but he did not join them in their sins. He sat with them, but he did not sin with them. And we ought not expect Jesus to sin with us today, but we do. We do. The Gospels are very clear about it. Here you go. Look up here again. Listen. The Gospels, the four Gospels, are very clear about this. There is not one exception anywhere that anybody could manipulate or twist any scripture to say otherwise. Very clear. Jesus loves everybody, but he doesn't tolerate everybody. He loves everybody, but he doesn't tolerate everybody. And the problem with our world today, with our culture today, in one of the absolute most misguided understandings of who Jesus is and what he calls us to, the world today conflates love and tolerance. In other words, you don't love me if you don't tolerate me exactly as I am, doing exactly what I want, even if it's to you. No matter what I'm doing, that's not love. That's not love at all. So repentance. And also understand, Paul isn't necessarily forbidding stealing as much as he's advocating a better way. He says, stop stealing. Certainly, you got to stop stealing. That's a big part of Paul's message. But his biggest point is not the front half of the verse, but the back half of the verse. Again, one of the problems, you and I tend to approach the Bible as a book of boring, puritanical, outdated do's and don'ts. <laughs> but it's really not. You heard Mallory standing up here saying, it's the story of God, okay? The Bible is not so much condemning a bad life as it is teaching the blessings of a better life. I wish we could get that. It's not enough to just stop sin because it's not very helpful if we don't have something better to turn to. Again, like a gift this morning on one of the news feeds, uh, as I was reading this morning, uh, this popped up. Now, here you go. Listen to this, okay? On Tuesday night, this is this last Tuesday night, just before 11 p.m., police received a call after two men, one of whom was armed, decided to make some extra cash by robbing a pizza shop in Indianapolis, Indiana. Thankfully, nobody was hurt, but the robbers did get away and they took a drawer's worth of money with them, about $80. They pulled a gun for 80 bucks, y'all, okay? The next day, the restaurant, Greek's Pizzeria, sent the thieves a message on Facebook. Rather than scold the men, the owner gave them some solid advice, advice which should be obvious, but no one ever said criminals were great at making life choices. And here's the Facebook message. Dear Mr. Robber, $80 isn't worth 10 to 15 years in jail. Next time, just ask for a job. Our delivery drivers make that almost every night. What makes this even more poignant is the restaurant had a now hiring all position sign posted on its wall at the time of the robbery. Security footage captured one of the suspects walking right by it. Got to have something better to turn to, and Paul provides it. And this is also a matter of perspective. I mean, stealing is selfish. Stealing is selfish. Working to provide for family, for self, and for others, working for the opportunity to add value and to be generous, that is selfless. There's a clear distinction here. 
And repentance not only leads to doing what's right, but more, repentance takes on the attributes of a truly gospel-transformed person, such as generosity. That's the point of the last half of the verse. And it's interesting, Paul adds this little clause in there. I don't know if you noticed it. Work with your own hands. <laughs> Why would he add that in there? Uh, there's a couple of reasons, actually. Uh, first of all, um, in another letter to the church in Thessalonica, he talks about busybodies, people who are always certain that they have a better plan for somebody else's life than the person has, and they're always telling them, and they're always in everybody else's business. He's saying, no, you just get to work and take care of yourself. Be focused on what you're doing. Do it with your own hands. But here's the second reason. It's a reminder that we were created for work in the first place. This is what Mallory was talking about this morning. You look at Genesis chapter 2. This is before the fall in Genesis 3. Mallory said this, as a matter of fact, this morning. Look at 5 through 8 and 15. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We were created for work. Mallory said this, and, and it's true. A lot of people think that work is a result of Genesis 3 in the fall, that there was no work that it's part of the curse of sin. No, it's not. We were designed to work before there was ever sin. Now, admittedly, the sin that we're corrupted with has made work a little bit more difficult, right? It's made it toilsome. It's made it difficult to trust. But nevertheless, we were created for work. By the way, I would even argue, let me just go a little deeper here. I would argue that based on Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the two primary activities that God created us for, and therefore, the way that you and I most bear the image of God. When we say we're image bearers of God, what does that mean? Here's what it means. It's relationship and work. That's when we are, that's when we are bearing the image of God, is through relationship and through work. God exists in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the interesting thing about that relationship is all three uh, in the Godhead, yield to one another. They submit to one another. They live in deference to one another. They live in community. They live in relationship. And then, what else about Genesis 1 and 2? God worked. He worked six days, and then he took a day off. Now, I know some of us have the problem with taking the day off. You got a workaholic problem. You need a Sabbath. But a lot of us now have a problem with working at all. You were created to work. I was created to work. That's what Genesis is about, and that's what the image-bearing of God is about, relationship and work. So, here you go. If you're a lazy people hater, you're probably not fulfilling God's vision for you. Jesus was a carpenter. Paul was a tent maker. The 19th century American theologian Albert Barnes writes this, It is antithetical to the gospel that a Christian would not be prone to work. 
Talk of a lazy Christian is about the same as talk of, a bur- of burning water or freezing fire. Something else this verse demonstrates. It demonstrates forgiveness. Paul hasn't brought up the word forgiveness yet. That comes later in the paragraph, but it's, there's, a, there's an implied forgiveness in this paragraph. Here, here you go. Paul, in this verse, Paul didn't say, hey, don't start stealing. If you're thinking about a life of thievery, don't. You're a good person, and we want you to continue to be good by not involving yourself in larceny. That's not what he said. He says, the one who has been stealing, of course, that person needs to stop stealing and start producing. But the clear assumption that Paul, uh, is that Paul writes this because the thief is a part of the community of the church. This person is already a part of the church community. Forgiven of his sins, not just by God, but also by his people. And now he lives as a full member of the kingdom of God, both vertically and horizontally. So this verse is also about forgiveness. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been sinned against by somebody in the church? Anybody anybody experience that? All of us have. Grace, forgiveness, trust. Those are things that the gospel is calling us to in community as we learn these things. By the way, that's what a marriage looks like too. Grace, forgiveness, trust. Those are the attributes of a great, great marriage. So generosity. Uh, Let me go back to Genesis 2 and 3 for just a moment. It's interesting. Through that Genesis uh, 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2 narrative, what you see is God calling his creation to Uh, in terms of the human beings, to work the creation in order to be a blessing, to take what God has given us, to resource us in order to be a blessing, in order to be generous with us, in order to make, um, make the world even better than it already is. That's what he's calling us to. But then uh, chapter three, that all gets broken because of the sin. And so the the ethos or the ethic of generosity that we see throughout Genesis 1 and 2 in Genesis 3, it gets changed to an ethos, an ethic of greed and of hoarding and of coveting and of jealousy and of hiddenness. And one of the things that the gospel of Jesus Christ does is it saves us from our sin, forgives us of our sin, but then calls us into this transformative new life where we are now working our way back toward that ethic of generosity and blessing. The Christ follower should be somebody who is continually putting away our our human tendency toward greed and toward coveting and toward distrust and, and should be moving toward this ethic of generosity. That's one of the things that the gospel of Jesus Christ does in us. But here's the problem. I get the problem. We're doing that not in the beautiful, perfect, sinless paradise of chap- Genesis chapter 2, but we're doing it in a world that is corrupted and fallen with sin. That's hard, isn't it? And you can't do it on your own. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's by His power, the gospel of the power, and not our own. And here's the best part of it. That means that when we live that life, as difficult as it is, we are going to be light in the darkness. The world is a dark, corrupt, 
greedy, hoarding, jealous, covetous place. And we are called to be a light in the midst of that. Jesus says you're the salt of the earth. Don't become unsalty. In other words, if you become just like the world around you, you are not going to make a difference. You have to be different. You need to be savory in an unsavory world. And he says you are the light as well. And light always wins over darkness. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever gone into a room, and tur- a dark room and turned on the light and the darkness stands there going, not going anywhere. The light always wins. And that's what we're, we're called to. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is writing in that section of that letter about the need of an offering for the other churches, from the other churches for the church in Jerusalem which has been ravaged by famine and economic desperation. And so he's trying to collect an offering for the Jerusalem church from all the other churches uh, around the Mediterranean in in areas that have not been ravaged by the famine and the economic depression. And he's writing to the church at Corinth because he's saying, look, you're the largest and wealthiest of all of these churches, and yet your offering compared to places like Philippi and Thessalonica, which are smaller and, and not as rich, your offering suffers in comparison to them. You guys need to step it up a little bit here. But it's interesting how he goes about making this, this case to them. He, 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 says, he says this. He says... Do you want this offering to be an extraction? Because I'm an apostle and I can come and just tell you to do it. Or do you want this to be a willing, genuine gift? And he writes these words. He writes, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Almost always there is regret when we give under compulsion. Almost always there is regret when you and I give under compulsion. When giving, the joy really actually comes from the attitude and the motivation. That might be a little too ethereal for some of you, but it's also true. I've certainly experienced this. When I've given grudgingly, when I felt like kind of forced to give, sort of hammered to give, and I've given that way before, I regret it later. And it's not because of the loss of the money, it's because I didn't have the joy of the giving in the first place. I wasn't cheerful about it. That's why I regretted it. But when I give generously and joyful, there is a blessing. And it's hard to describe in concrete terms. It really is. But there's a blessing. It's a sense of pleasure and gladness and and certainly a peace about it. It, 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 it. There is no peace in compulsion. There is no peace in compulsion. So Paul says, don't bother if it's under compulsion. Wait until you can do it joyfully, for that is when the blessing comes. I was a brand new Christian in 1987. Let me set this up a little bit. Um, Going to North Phoenix Baptist Church. Never, I'd never been to church, okay? I'd been a couple of times, but you don't want to hear about those experiences. I, I was new to the whole church thing, new to the whole faith thing. And I'm going with Jackie. Um, it's the only way I could get her to go out with me. But anyway, um, <laughs> we're going, and, 
And God saves me there at North Phoenix Baptist Church. And one of the first things I'm confronted with is the fact that during every service, they pass the plate. And, you know, hope nobody saw that. Okay, so now, you know, you're like giving. So now listen to this. In 1987, I was making $40,000 a year. Some of you are like, that's not very much. In 1987, that was really good, okay? Plus a year-end bonus. So just to give you some, some uh, parameters there, my mortgage in 1987 was $500 a month, and I had a 2,500-square-foot house in north-central Phoenix. And I only put 5% down. Uh, Car insurance, I paid less than $600 a year for car insurance, and my car payment was $110 a month. So $40,000 plus a bonus was pretty good. I started giving $10 every other week at North Phoenix. Okay, but here you go. That was big for a guy who'd never been to church before. In my context, I, I would argue that's actually not too bad. God was working. God was working. Then I started reading scripture, and I began to realize, oh my goodness, there's this thing in there about 10% and all that, and all over the Old Testament, there's a couple of references in the New Testament, and I began to realize 10% is the bare minimum. And by the way, some people think that's what you're supposed to, it's the bare minimum in scripture. The real tithe is actually much higher than 10%, especially in the Old Testament, you start to add in all the other stuff, it's generally around 25, 27%. Okay, so 10%, so I'm reading the 10%, 10%, and so I said, okay, you know what, and God moved in my life, the Spirit moved in my life, this was not Jackie talking to me, it wasn't Richard Jackson talking to me, and he could scare the snot out of you, by the way, those of you that remember Richard, this was the Holy Spirit talking to me, and so I, I you know what, I'm going to start giving 10%, but it's going to be on the net, because of course God understands about taxes and how stupid they are, and the IRS, and all that, so I started giving 10% on the, on the net. Then I read some more. By the way, this was a process over years, and the Holy Spirit kept working. I began to realize, uh, it's the first fruits. That includes all those taxes i got to pay this to God before even I pay my taxes. The Spirit was working. The Spirit was working. I found in life, most of the time, this is not true all the time, but most of the time, existential change takes place one millimeter at a time because that's how the Spirit works in us. Now, that's not an excuse for us to resist the Spirit, I'm just telling you that's how strong our flesh is. And God has your whole lifetime to work on that. So I got to that 10% first fruits thing, and then the Spirit started talking to me about, you know what? Quit doing the math. Give what I'm leading you to give and trust me. And ever since then, and I do not say this to brag, it is merely an example of how the Holy Spirit works. At the end of the year, when we do our taxes, we give way more than 10%, way more than 15%. And here you go. Because I'm not doing the math, we never miss it. We're giving, I miss that $10 every week. I missed it. That was like 15 cups of coffee back then. Way more now. 
Never miss it. Never miss it. Allow the Spirit to work in you over time. I've been studying the book of Ephesians for more than 30 years now. One of the most important books I wrote papers on in seminary, I translated it out of the Greek into English at one point. I've taught it several times. In April, I was preparing for one of the Ephesians sermons. I, I mean, I think I know Ephesians really well. In April, I was preparing for one of the messages, and I was just overcome. I was like, I am so selfish. I am really selfish. I've said for you, yeah, I'm selfish. Everybody is. But it was like, I was over. I am really selfish. This is not, this is a serious problem. It took 30 years in Ephesians with the Holy Spirit working in me to come to that understanding. By the way, Jackie's like, amen, man. (laughs) We need to understand that. This is, by the way, another reason why I, I don't pound people to give because I think that's counterproductive. Now, the reality is, is that church needs money to operate. We have expenses. We have salaries and a mortgage and all of that stuff. But here you go. Am I going to trust my ability to pound on y'all? Or am I going to trust the Holy Spirit to provide? Right? Some of you are like, well, in that context, yes, trust the Spirit. (laughs) But it's true. It's true. Funny thing is, Paul's true lesson comes even before that in the sowing and reaping discussion. He says, if we sow or invest or live our life in a scroogey, cheap, slothful, and chintzy way, we will receive back a life of emptiness and insincerity and desolation. We just will. We might think we're being smart, but we're really being foolish. Abundance can only come from abundance, bounty from bounty, fullness from fullness. Commitment actually means something. And this example that he gives us really is Jesus. Jesus went fully to the cross. Do you understand that? He went bountifully, abundantly, completely to the cross. He was all in. He sowed generously through his sacrifice. And what we reap from that sacrifice is the fullness of an abundant life that that Jesus talks about in John chapter 10. One of the most unhelpful things the lottery has done to the psyche of American people is that it's helped us to to believe that we can now sow sparingly a dollar and reap abundantly millions. And, and, And that's just absolutely not true. That's the exception for the person who wins it. By the way, you know the statistics on that. Two-thirds of the people who win the lottery within three to five years are bankrupt. The rule is that generosity begets generosity, and that generosity always starts with doing what you and I were created to do. Work, build, resource, invest, steward, and give. In Galatians, Paul says it this way, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. And if you sow to the Spirit, if you sow to the cross of Christ, you will reap life from the Spirit. Again, Paul is not just pointing us away from that which is bad. He is primarily pointing us to that which is good. Let me close with this. Can't resist. You don't have to raise your hand. We're in church, I know. How many of you saw the 2007 movie, There Will Be Blood? Daniel Day-Lewis. It's, it, man, 
It is a tough movie, right, Mark? Tough, tough movie. But really, really good. And the thing I love about the movie is that the screenwriter and the director, the, the guy wrote the movie and he directed the movie, he's done that several times, his name is Paul Thomas Anderson, he has such a keen insight into human nature and the power of both greed and generosity, and he explains all that in the unveiling of this story of There Will Be Blood. Daniel Day-Lewis played the main character, he won the Academy Award that year uh, for Best Actor, and his character is a hard-driving, crafty, unsavory businessman and oil baron in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And he becomes one of the world's wealthiest persons. Yet he is greedy, corrupt, hateful, and stingy. And in the end, even though he has fortune and material things beyond our wildest imaginations, he reaps a stingy, corrupt, hateful, and miserable life. Now, what I find beautifully ironic about this story, though, is that the, uh, there's another main character in this story who initially, and for most of the movie, you believe stands in complete opposition to the Daniel Day-Lewis character. It's the town preacher and pastor, a younger guy. And you think that he stands in opposition to Daniel Day-Lewis representing righteousness and good, but he doesn't stand in opposition. At the end of the movie, we discover that he's the same character as Daniel Day-Lewis. The only difference is that he just wears a clergy collar. It's the only difference. He has the same tragic fundamental flaw as the Daniel Day-Lewis character. He is a religious, fundamentalist, legalist, and he is Scrooge-like and chintzy with grace. And in the end of the movie, he too is miserable, for he has sown grace sparingly. If you're here and you're looking for meaning in life, I can guarantee you wealth is not the answer. But I can also tell you religion isn't the answer either. Jesus is the answer. Only Jesus and his beautiful life of generosity for you and me. That's the answer. Let's pray together. Lord God, we, we thank you for how generous Jesus has been with us. And though we could never match that generosity, and in fact, we are, the, uh, we are the beneficiaries of that generosity, help us understand that by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we are also called to live generous lives. Help us to do that. Help us to do that in our own context. Help us to, to seek counsel from the Holy Spirit first and foremost in all of these things, and then be guided by that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.